in the discourses, the Buddha talks about different doorways to awakening, almost like different portals. Talks about faith being a path of awakening. Talks about the practices of insight being a doorway to awakening. Speaks about the understanding of emptiness as being a doorway to complete awakening. And in this discourse, uh, too, the Buddha speaks about the Brahma-viharas as being pathways to complete liberation. Those of you who have some familiarity with teaching will know that the Brahma-viharas is a collection of teachings and a collection of practices that include the practice of metta, of boundless friendliness, of compassion, of appreciative joy and equanimity. Um, Sometimes people are surprised to hear of these pathways, the Brahma-viharas, as being doorways to awakening, which actually makes some practices of insight. I think this is very clearly put forward in the discourses. So this evening, well, through the retreat, we want to actually talk about these qualities of the Brahma-viharas as insight practices and what that means for them to be insight practices. So this evening, I'd like to start with talking about metta. Now, in the, one of the earliest collections of the Buddha's teaching, there is um, a sutta, a discourse called the Sutta Napata, which I think is pretty widely recognized as being one of the earliest teachings of the Buddha. And within that sutta, there, there lies this jewel of a teaching on metta, the teaching of boundless or immeasurable, unshakable friendliness. And it speaks about metta as a thread that weaves its way through the whole of the path, as metta as being one of the central um, qualities of the heart or and of understanding that is a key to bringing suffering and distress to an end. And speaks about our really as met as a path of awakening and speaks about our heart's capacity for this boundless or immeasurable warmth and friendliness. And so Buddha put it really simply. He said that metta ennobles the heart and leads to awakening. Now, for sure, the more that I teach and the more that I practice, the more I understand about how thin is the separation and how really thin is the actual membrane that separates metta from all other practices of meditation. Because we could ask ourselves, what is metta without mindfulness? 
well, it would probably just be a transient state that would come and go and, you know, yeah, a transient state. We could also ask, what is mindfulness without metta? And I think mindfulness without metta tends to go into that sort of um, shadow side of mindfulness or that near enemy of mindfulness, which is just kind of eyeballing something more closely, you know, or, or just looking at something with a kind of cold stare of attention. Now, metta is sometimes interestingly translated as the willingness to stand next to something. The willingness to stand close to something or the willingness to stand near to all things. Now we can see how that is so interwoven with mindfulness because we see that the very nature of the mindfulness that we're cultivating here on a retreat is this again and again this intention to turn towards the moment to turn towards all experience and all events equally, with curiosity, with discernment, um, and with kindness. It's kind of the essence of mindfulness. And we see the very nature of metta, of course, is to befriend all experience, to be close to, to be in a relationship, with all events, all experiences, both metta and mindfulness, their intention is actually to bring us ever, ever closer to the simple truths of each moment in our lives and in our practice, we actually really see how important and how true this is. We would probably all acknowledge that it's pretty difficult to understand anyone or anything or ourselves from a distance. We need to be intimate with. We need to be close to. It's pretty difficult in our lives to, well actually maybe it's pretty easy in our lives to forgive someone from a distance. But maybe it's a little bit more challenging to find genuine forgiveness and to know that it can only be born of a quality of intimacy. We don't find joy or generosity from from a distance and compassion is certainly not a remote offering. Time and time again, I think in our lives and our practice, we are asked to stand near to joy and asked to stand near to sorrow, asked to stand near to heartache and to fear, and to also the appreciation of the lovely. We're asked to stand near to the people we love and those we struggle with, the difficult and the lovely emotions and thoughts that run through consciousness, and to stand near to all that our bodies can and will experience in this life. Now it is actually this willingness and this capacity, and these are both important words. Willingness is already changing a tide of resistance, isn't it? 
and capacity, the capacity to stand near to all things. This is actually what we're training in this practice, our sense of capacity. But this willingness and capacity to be equally present with all events and experience, with boundless warmth, boundless friendliness and kindness, this is actually the ground of insight and understanding, the beginning of a liberation of the heart. But please be aware, we do not begin with boundless and immeasurable warmth and friendliness. We warm up to this. We warm up to this through practice, through application, through willingness. For sure, our metta often in our lives is quite bounded, but this does not make it worthless, does not make it valueless. We may just get intimations of what difference it can make in our lives to have that willingness to stand next to something rather than to flee from it or to abandon it. And this really needs to be so experientially based. But that beginning, that beginning of that willingness to stand next to something, near to something, I think is actually the most significant step we can make to bring suffering to an end. Certainly what I see in practice, one of the most radical transformations that any of us can make in our lives is the movement from aversion to kindness. It's actually a revolution in consciousness. Certainly what I also see in mindfulness-based applications, some of you will be familiar with some of these, that the greatest step anyone ever makes is that movement from aversion to the willingness to stand next to. It is the beginning of healing, but it's more than that. It's actually the beginning of liberation. It's a big, very genuine ground of awakening. What the Buddha calls Cheto Vimuti, the liberation of the heart. Tartan Tuku once said, Loving compassion is like sunlight, awakening and bringing joy to beings. Its beauty is like a rainbow, lifting the heart of all that it touches. Now, metta, this this foundational quality of befriending, not only has a direct relationship with mindfulness, with insight, with awakening, but it's actually the base of all of the other Brahma-viharas, the ennobling qualities of the heart. If we wish to understand, really, compassion in its deeper sense, we first need to understand metta. In fact, in this practice, compassion is often said simply to be the extension of metta. If we wish to understand the nature of joy, certainly we need to understand what it means to stand next to all of the, all things because this is the only way that we can be touched by all things. This, and being touched is what allows our hearts to be gladdened. And if we wish to understand what unshakable poise and balance is, the nature of equanimity, it begins with understanding metta. Now, Long Chengpa, he once wrote, 
Out of the soil of friendliness grows the bloom of compassion, watered by the tears of joy, and sheltered under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity. Are these qualities so interwoven? Now, metta, this quality that we're speaking about, about this boundless friendliness, is it's not an emotion. It's important to distinguish that. It's not an emotional state. In fact, it is much more in the realm of being an attitudinal commitment. It is always relational. It is not about a state of disconnection, of remoteness, but a way of being present with all things, all people, all thoughts, all events, all experiences, everything that makes up our world of the moment. So that attitudinal commitment of metta is actually also, I have to say, a path. It is something we cultivate. Not something that we're, if we're fortunate, we bump into. You know, or if we have the right genes or the right karma, we get a little meta along with it. This is a path and a cultivation just as anything else we do in this path. Attention, concentration, inquiry and investigation. They're all paths, all conscious cultivations. But metta is something more than this because metta is also something we enact and manifest that is really is translated into words, into actions, into our thoughts. So here is a piece we don't actually have to feel warmth and friendliness in order to manifest warmth and friendliness. As meta is about as much about what we do as about what we feel. And sometimes just the doing, the enactment of, it, of metta, turns backwards to actually deepen and plant the seeds of genuine friendliness. I know this is not a popular view in the West. We should always feel it if we're going to do it. No, metta is something different than this. Recently, I, I did a, a day... Uh, with a group of people, uh, some of you will be familiar with their work, called Combatants for Peace. It's a group of Israeli and Palestinian activists, um, quite extraordinary people in many ways, and yet really such simple people, many of them. But anyway, this group of people, young and middle-aged and older, men and women, all have grown up, of course, as we know, with a history of war and conflict and hatred and violence. And during this, this day that they offered, some of them told some of their stories seeing their families killed by snipers, by bombs. Some of them told the stories of killing others, people that they'd never met. One Palestinian man, 27, had already spent 12 years of his life in an Israeli prison. 
and they all spoke about the ways that his uh, that that hatred and fear and mistrust and suspicion had permeated their lives for as long as they could remember. Now, some of this group of people didn't even share a common language. Not all those Palestinians spoke Hebrew or Yiddish, and not all the Israelis actually spoke Arabic. So they actually had an interpreter to talk between them at times. They didn't share a common language, but they actually did share a common past. And all of them, each single one of them, spoke about the turning point in their lives, the turning point in their minds that came to them in different ways, where they saw each of them in some unshakable way that they did not want their past to be their future. And in seeing that, committed themselves to this pathway of activism, path, this pathway of peace. It was no easy thing because they saw, just as we saw, the ways in which our past arise again and again in the present through our memories, through our thoughts, through our stories of hurt, our stories of resentment, our stories of anger. What does metta mean in all of that? What does metta mean in all of that? There, it's not necessarily about feeling a particular way, but it is about the willingness to stand next to all of this and to know deeply that there is a possibility of walking another pathway to know that just as our memories and our stories and our reactions arise in the present, so too does the possibility of either reinforcing and solidifying those memories, those patterns of anger, feeding them, maintaining suffering. But there is also the possibility in that moment of coming to know through the conscious cultivation and the conscious application of metta what it is to radically change our minds of the moment. And in doing that, in radically changing our minds of the moment, we see how often we radically change our world of the moment. Now, I, listening to this group of, of Israelis and Palestinians, I was so touched by the size of the undertaking that they had committed themselves to. Because not only did they share this common past of hatred and, and mistrust, but in choosing to walk the path that they did, many of them spoke of the ways that they'd been judged and rejected by their families, by their communities, by their societies, really became in sometimes a kind of outcast. But their path was actually two simultaneous paths, two simultaneous pathways. One aspect of it was taking upon themselves to understand and to release this ancient historical legacy of emotion and reactivity inwardly. But the other was actually to manifest their commitment to peace. 
So they would walk after bulldozers, rebuilding things that had been knocked down. They would walk after bulldozers, replanting olive trees that had been uprooted. They would protect children from abuse as they walked to school. To love each other was clearly asking way too much. To undo their past was clearly asking way too much. But it was evident in all that they did that they were learning to stand next to, to stand near to all of this. And metta is that kind of commitment of the heart translated into intention, manifested in thought, words, and actions, and our way of being present with all things. And I think that takes a remarkable amount of courage. And we may not be, of course, we have many of us are not in those dire situations in our life. But think of that, this, you know, kind of apply this in our own lives where, you know, perhaps someone offends us. Perhaps we're exposed to something that's very difficult to be near to. You know, perhaps we're afraid of something. Well, you know, perhaps we see our, our own tendencies arise to, to judge or to be hostile. What does it mean in that moment? We may not feel any sense of warmth or friendliness. What does it mean to enact metta? And what does that change in us? What does that change in us? Perhaps it changes our own historical patterns, our own historical legacies of abandonment, of, 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 of rage, of mistrust, of suspicion. This is something I think quite, quite helpful to investigate in our own lives. Now why did the Buddha in his teaching give so much emphasis to the development of metta to the development of boundless friendliness, because certainly you see this way, this all through the discourses, when the Buddha says, this is why we do this, out of concern for the well-being and the, the, the happiness and the safety of all beings. This is why we practice. This is why we walk this path. <coughs> I think when the Buddha looked at his own heart and his own life, when he looked at the, wall, the world around him, he probably saw a lot of what we see. He saw actually the very destructive power of ill will. The way that ill will has the power simply to leech joy from our lives, to create estrangement, to create fear, to create alienation. We cannot find, of course, one arena of conflict, one arena of, of, of alienation, one arena of isms in our world, which is not built upon ill will, whether it's you know, huge global conflicts or whether it is on a much more personal level in our own lives. We see the way that ill will, as the Buddha talks about it, and he uses this phrase very specifically, ill will, rather than anger. He talks about the way that ill will stifles 
suffocates our capacity for authenticity, for integrity, for responsiveness, for compassion. And the way that ill will actually only ever has one outcome, which is to create and to perpetuate suffering in ourselves and in all of our relationships and in all of our world. So in this teaching, you know, though it seems really complex at times, and indeed at times it is extraordinarily profound and subtle, you know, it keeps coming back to some very core principles. You know, and what the Buddha talked about is, you know, one of these very core principles is that the primary tendencies that keep us entangled in confusion, in struggle, in despair, in, in estrangement, it's the big three. You know, it's greed, ill will, and delusion. And they're all interwoven. They're not like separate tendencies. They're the kind of tangled knot of confusion. Now, one of the primary purposes of metta, of course, just as one of the primary purposes of insight, is to untangle this knot, is to uproot this tendency, uproot this tendency of ill will and aversion that arises. As the Buddha put it, one who actively, actively, notice the word, one who actively develops metta mindfully and without limit will see their clinging fade and their bonds become worn thin. So where do we actively cultivate metta? Well, I'm sure it's not going to be any surprise to you. We actively cultivate metta in all the moments of ill will and aversion that arise. Because metta is relational. It's that willingness to stand near to, the willingness to stand next, next to the little flickers of ill will that arise, rather than to flee. Ill will has so many different names and so many different phases. You know, there's the grosser forms we're all aware of, you know, of hatred, of blame, of contempt, of condemnation. The basis of all forms of prejudice, the basis of all forms of oppression in our world. But ill will can be much more subtle than that, can't it? it it's just those, those little, you know, the little judgments, you know, the, little, the small envies, the little resentments we might harbor, the, the jealousies, the impatience, the resistance. You know, my understanding is that ill will will even manifest as numbness and even as fantasy. Because even that is a way of abandoning what is. So ill will, we can see that the very nature of ill will, the very nature, of, the very inclination of ill will is to turn away from, isn't it? It's to reject, it's to deny, it's to push away, it's to forsake, it's to avoid, it's to suppress. In the Tibetan tradition, there is a wonderful jewel of a teaching that says, we should not be afraid of the passions that lead us to embrace all sentient beings, 
in the arms of compassion. But we should be afraid of any passion that leads us to abandon any sentient being. I find this a really powerful statement. You know, because I think often people have the impression of this path that it it has this direction of making us rather passionless. But this is really not so. The direction of this path really acknowledges and it honors the passions that are needed of love, of compassion, of courage, of uprightness, of care, that lead us to embrace all sentient beings in the arms of compassion. But there is another passion that leads us really only ever to abandon all sentient beings, including ourselves. And that is the passion of ill will. So cultivating metta in the midst of ill will is an insight practice. It's equally an investigation. It's a quality of investigation here. To understand what keeps the toxicity and the tendency of ill will alive. Because certainly the teaching of metta is not even to abandon ill will but to see what it is that keeps us alive in our hearts and minds. Because when we really look at it, all of us, I think, what we see that this tendency of ill will, which can arise with some frequency, isn't it completely contradictory to everything that we most deeply value and cherish in our lives? Isn't ill will so contradictory to our longings, our deepest longings and wishes for safety, for happiness, to feel at ease in the world, to feel connected to others, the capacity to be intimate? There's this kind of paradox that's going on in our lives and in our minds. Now, I think one aspect of ill will that becomes immediately apparent if we can find the willingness to explore this difficult emotional landscape, is that when ill will is present, the voice of selfing becomes stronger and louder and more dominant with each wave of ill will. It's almost like the stronger the aversion, the stronger the the ill will, is the degree of strength that the voice of I assumes. Something to check out in your own experience, please. Notice that when ill will strengthens, the story gets much bigger. The story gets much louder. It's almost as if this interaction of ill will and the strengthening of selfing is actually giving rise to this narrative that becomes stronger and more solid and more convincing with each recounting. I really don't want this. I really don't like this. I really can't bear this. I really can't accept this. You are like this. You know, I am like this. What is created, you can see, as the voice of selfing 
empowered by ill will gets stronger, so does the sense of other. This becomes much more dominant. Now, the other might be an event we feel that we can't bear. The other might be a person who that we, f- we feel injured by or that we feel afraid of or that we dislike. But you know what? The other is often within us. That we are creating an other out of our own body experience, out of emotions that we can't accept, out of memories or images we find difficult to be with, thoughts that we condemn, we create the other within ourself. Now, the more that this kind of selfing and othering gets stronger, so does the chasm between them, so does the impossibility of healing. It is so important to find in ourselves the gentleness, the kindness, the tenderness, to be curious about this landscape of ill will in all its forms, rather than following the all too familiar pathways of heaping ill will upon ill will. And I must say, people in this practice, in this path, even seem to gain, gain a certain expertise in this. You know, I actually shouldn't be so judgmental. <laughs> and I really shouldn't be so, so ungenerous. You know, I really shouldn't be so miserable. I shouldn't be so suspicious. What a, it just shows what a terrible and unworthy person I am. So metta is teaching us. What is it teaching us? It's teaching us to touch all moments, all experiences with kindness, including moments of aversion. Perhaps it also becomes equally clear to us, and this is something very much to check out in your day, that when ill will is not present, but instead in the light of kindness, in the light of moments of generosity and sensitivity and empathy, all of those qualities that really ennoble and dignify our lives. Do you notice how the voice of selfing gets much quieter? And the voice that the tendency to create an other becomes much quieter? And do you know how much calmer the story is? We don't say, you know, where did that generosity come from, you know, and, you know, why am I feeling so generous, and does that person really deserve my generosity? And it all becomes much calmer, doesn't it? This is really so important for us to understand. Just note, just to notice, to be aware of in our days, because what we are talking about is looking at what, in what kind of climate does the idea of a separated, fragile, fearful self arise and thrive? And in what kind of inner climate does the idea, does the sense of a separate self and an estranged other begin to fall away and to calm down? So in this practice, we're not trying to get rid of it. We're not trying to be friendly. What we are actually doing again and again in this practice is cultivating the inner conditions in which matter thrives and deepens and grows. We're cultivating the inner conditions in which ill will 
is quite naturally released and to look at what are those inner conditions. Mindfulness, spaciousness, investigation, curiosity and metta. Now much of the practice of metta, of course, is devoted to understanding and dispelling this illusion of a separated self and other. Understanding the construction of self and other and coming to see that as I am, so are you. As you are, so am I. Beginning to appreciate our shared humanity in which we equally long for, for happiness, for peace, for safety, for protection, for respect. And perhaps we can equally long for the freedom born of extinguishing the fires of ill will. I feel that deepening in this path really depends upon us learning to be tender with all things. Kind, warm, tolerant with the people that we judge and find intrusive, with the person that we find harsh or coldness or impatience, knowing that in some moments we too will probably have been all of these. Being tender with ourselves, knowing all our moments of harshness and reactivity, our feelings of unworthiness, have all been born of conditions whose beginning is untraceable. That all that we can actually care for are the conditions of this moment. So a couple of pieces, I think, that really illustrate this. One of them is part of a poem by Mary Oliver. And she says, I therefore look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood, and I look upon time as no more than an idea, and I consider eternity as another possibility. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy, and as singular, and each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending as all music does towards silence, and each body a lion of courage, and something precious to the earth. When the Buddha speaks about this, about the, this power of metta, he says, as a mother watches over her child, willing to risk her own life to protect her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings suffusing the whole world with unobstructed loving-kindness. So what are the conditions that ill will rests upon? Because ill will does not arise from a vacuum, nothing does. And the primary condition, perhaps the obvious one, because it's the primary condition for the arising of any quality of heart or mind that is unhelpful that creates suffering, it's basically, and a lot of it comes back to understanding what identification, what clinging does to us. Not condemning it, but understanding what clinging really does to us, does to our minds, does to our hearts, does to our lives. We see that what, often what is clung to is, is, is the sense of me, the sense of self, the sense of I, being defined by bodies, by feelings, by 
perceptions, by tendencies, by consciousness, all of this that we called me, that defining goes on through moment to moment through identification. We define the world, we define ourselves by what we identify with. Defining by nature is limitation. Defining is a way of fixing, a fixation of things, of people in place. And by nature, by its very nature, this tendency to define through identification is a tendency of fear, of limitation, of estrangement. I think somehow we know so intuitively each of us, how very deeply fragile our life is. I think we all know somehow intuitively how uncertain this world is that we live in, how we can take nothing for granted, how vulnerable each of us is to change into the instability of conditions, how for each of us our worlds can crumble in a moment. It's almost as if we can't bear that intuition. It's almost as if we can't bear that knowing inwardly. So we try through identification to make something solid, something to protect, something to defend, make a me, even though, and this is the extraordinary piece, even though we don't even often like the me that we construct. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Seems better than none at all. But there you go. (laughs) But this limited identification of me is carrying with it this undercurrent of anxiety, the fear, the fear of injury, of harm, of loss, of not being good enough. And fear is a kind of ill will. Fear is a kind of aversion. It almost, it seems, doesn't occur to us that there, there is a freer and a wiser and a kinder way to approach this intrinsic vulnerability, and that would be to embrace it with kindness and with compassion, with courage, learning to soften, learning to open to that vulnerability. So identification is one of the primary conditions from which ill will arises, but, but there's an, and thrives, but there's another one and it's craving. It's kind of like the sister, the brother of ill will is craving. It's a difficult family. <laughs> um. The Buddha once said, the path of those who cultivate metta It's the path of those who are learning to be at ease in the midst of all conditions. The path of those learning to cultivate metta is the path of those learning to be at ease in the midst of all conditions. As part of the Metta Sutta, but it gives us encouragement to discover an inner contentment, an unburdened heart. But we see how craving the sister, the brother of ill will, is anything but content. 
It's always seeking contentment elsewhere. And that makes us agitated because that's enacting. Another craving is another kind of abandonment and it's enacting a belief in insufficiency and fear you know, of not being enough, of not having enough, of not being good enough. And so we often are prone through craving to forsake ourselves and to forsake where we are. And in doing that, we become a hostage of conditions, a prisoner of conditions. With One of the key threads of metta is to understand that without contentment, we are always elsewhere. In a better body, a better mind, a better moment, you know, a better partner, a better walking path, even a better cushion, a better experience. But contentment is so much part of the fabric of metta, of learning to stand next, near to all things. It's the beginning of a boundless friendliness. It's almost as if the mantra of metta is this too, this too. This too can be embraced. A non-identification, contentment, ease, mindfulness, integrity, these are all the conditions we cultivate in which metta thrives and flourishes. But so too is courage. It is so not easy to stand near to sorrow stand near to blame or pain. It's not easy to stand next to difficult people and emotions. And is not about being nice. You know, it's not about a kind of sentimentality. That's a kind of near enemy of metta. It is about courage. It's about swimming against the tide. The unpleasant sight, sound appears, the difficult body sensation, the difficult emotion. We catch sight of the person we fear or dislike. So quickly we move into judgment. So quickly we move into forsaking and distancing and pushing away. It almost seems like it's easier to be aversive than to cultivate metta. But what I think we see is that the mind tends to cling to the pathways it knows. And this is so much where metta and mindfulness go hand in hand because instead of that abandonment, we learn to pause, to have the courage to be upright, not to turn away, knowing that each moment of abandonment is only reinforcing the patterns of ill will and is delivering the peace and the well-being of our hearts into the hands of conditions. We might think the small moments of aversion don't matter, but they really do, because these are the building blocks of the much bigger moments. We don't have to love the difficult, but it might be possible not to forsake it and to plant the seeds again and again of to meet this moment with mindfulness and with friendliness. Seeds that with practice grow into the possibilities of a boundless friendliness. It's not something we feel, it is about also what we do. It's turning metta into a verb. We are metta-ing. We're learning to metta. 
Now, this cultivation method always has been a path of awakening, illuminating all the places where ill will in its many forms casts its shadow. It's a path of understanding, knowing ill will is suffering. It's a path of healing, of healing ill will and being free from suffering. We begin with bounded metta. Metta that feels to have conditions, but it is where we begin. Sometimes metta for those we love and care for is so effortless. Many times metta for those moments we struggle with, inwardly or outwardly, takes so much effort. But with practice, it turns into something much more effortless. And that is, I feel, a genuine taste of freedom. It's a genuine taste of freedom. I want to end with a story some of you may be familiar with. A young man who had just completed his spiritual training and was eagerly intent on becoming a teacher moved to a new town. He tried to teach, but no one came. The only spiritual interest in the town were the many followers of a wise and well-known rabbi. Frustrated, the young teacher devised a plan to embarrass the old master and gain students for himself. He captured a small bird and one day went to where the master was seated, surrounded by many disciples. Holding the small bird in his hand, he spoke directly to the master. If you are so wise, tell me now, is this bird in my hand alive or dead? His plan was this. If the master said the bird was dead, he would open his hand, the bird would fly away, the master would be wrong, and students would come to him. If the master said the bird was alive, he would quickly crush the bird in his hand and open it and say, see, the bird is dead. Again, the master would be wrong and the young teacher would gain students. Looks like a win-win situation. (laughs) So he sat, poised in front of the master, demanding an answer. Tell me, if you are so wise, is this bird alive or is it dead? The master looked back at him with great compassion and answered quite simply, Really, my friend, it's up to you. If we just take a moment quietly together. (laughs) 